Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hasia whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at haciaworks.org. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and the Oscars may have been pushed even farther into next year, but I declare this time right now to be award season. The Nobel Prizes have just been announced, and the National Book Awards are right around the corner, and we learned last week about the 21 people who won MacArthur Fellowships, which are also known as Genius Grants. It is an amazing list of super smart people, including two of my favorite authors, N.K. Jemisin and Jacqueline Woodson. The list also includes an artist and a playwright and a filmmaker. There are people who work in fields like econometrics, whatever that is, genetics, neuroscience, chemical engineering, environmental health, and cellular biology. Today, we are going to talk to a newly named genius. Her name is Mary L. Gray. And she's an anthropologist and a media scholar who looks at how labor and identity and human rights are transformed by technology. What does that mean, you ask? Well, the short version is she's a huge nerd. The slightly less short version is that she has written one book about how big tech companies use an underpaid, exploited underclass to make the apps we love so easy to use. And she wrote another book that leans on her own personal backstory to research another underrepresented group, which is queer people living in rural America. Most recently, her research has focused on the coronavirus pandemic, specifically how what we may consider to be tech solutions, like how your phone could help you with contact tracing, are actually contributing to health disparities and systemic racism simply because they often ignore the groups who most need help. Mary Gray is with me now to talk about all of that. Mary, hi. Hello. Thank you for having me. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm very excited to join you. Are you at all tempted to put genius like in the signature of your emails or on your business cards or anything? No, not in the slightest. And in fact, I thought there's like that running joke when you have a PhD that you're not really a doctor um, or, Mm -hmm. you know, you play a doctor on TV. And I thought Mm -hmm. it'd be fun to say to somebody like, you know, I'm no genius because I'm really no genius. <laughs> um, and now I can't exactly make that joke without it sounding weird. Shame. It's a shame to take that off the table. So the MacArthur Foundation cited a couple of books that you worked on in giving you the prize. Uh, one was titled Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. And the other was called Out in the Country, Youth Media and Queer Visibility in Rural America. Even based solely on these titles alone, let alone the content of these books, these are very different topics. <laughs> what unites them? Like, how are they, how are you telling similar stories in each of those books? I mean, it's interesting because for, for me, they're so deeply connected. And I realize, um, I understand why they don't seem connected, but 
for the most part, I feel like I'm asking the same question over and over again, which is what difference does technology make? And, and quite literally, can it make a difference? What are the other conditions that constrain or um, can amplify the effects of, of technologies in our everyday lives? How much are you drawn to this research also because it's, it's stuff that isn't being done yet or hasn't been done before? Absolutely. I mean, the topics that I research often have connections to my own experiences or the experiences of people in my life. So I, I grew up in a small town in rural mm-hmm. California, in the Central Valley of California. Mm-hmm. And I knew when I left for um, the big city that there was something quite um, possible about living in, uh, queerly out in the country. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I didn't really have um, the training to investigate what what could happen in rural places. And, and, and so when I went to graduate school, it was out of political urgency. I mean, I was a queer youth activist. I've aged out of that category. But at the time, I wanted to understand, could the internet help people in places outside of San Francisco, New York City, um, Chicago, uh, be able to carve out space for themselves. And that was really the origin story of that research. And when I finished that project, the thing that was, you know, that resonated was that the lack of economic opportunity was exacerbating the tensions of being different of being queer in rural places. So the project um, that became Ghost Work, which is co-authored with Siddhar Suri, who's a computer scientist, mm-hmm. uh, shout out to Sid. Um, that work was taking up a, a similar question. There are, there are people behind this thing we call artificial intelligence, and we don't know who they are, and we know that they could likely be in dire circumstances. So you know, what could make a difference here? What could technology do? And what might it be undoing about their experience, their economic lives? So when it comes to tech, something that you've been thinking about more recently is how technology can be used to help fight the spread of COVID-19. And you recently wrote an essay called Colorblind Tech is Killing Us. It looks at how technological efforts to track the spread of covid are failing those people who are most at risk. First, can we talk about what some of those efforts are and then talk about how they're not working the way maybe tech thought that they would? Yeah, I think, you know, with all good intentions, when the pandemic hit the United States, technologists looked to other countries that were deploying um, digital tracing apps, you know, phone, phone applications that a person could look at that might let them know that they have passed somebody who tested positive for COVID. Yeah, this seems kind of perfect, right? Because it's like, hey, you were in the elevator with some, you know, and like based on phones, you can tell. Exactly. Yeah private, really great exchange. Well, the problem with that approach is that it was deployed in places like South Korea that have universal health care and a pretty high trust of the state to care for your everyday basic needs. It's real. I mean, it's a very different experience to have um, a country you trust that gives you free health care, tell you that you might need to go get care. So 
that's that's night and day compared to what we have in the United States. Mm-hmm. So the contact tracing apps that have been built with, again, the best intentions that prioritize privacy for an individual, we're not thinking, well, actually what we really need to be building are people's trust in mm-hmm. public health. Mm-hmm. And the reality in the United States is we don't actually have a a national public health infrastructure. So even if you tell somebody via text, hey, you might have been exposed to COVID-19, there's not a lot you can do about it unless you already had the means to do something about it. Right. Well, and and the other piece, piece of this puzzle that you talk about in the article is that, you know, it's become very clear over the course of the pandemic here in the United States that this disease is very disproportionately impacting, especially people of color. Here Absolutely. In this I mean, it's a reflection of where we don't put resources and where we um, have not invested in care for our citizens and our and our neighbors. So, you know, it's showing us, as technology often does, it's, it's a mirror for where we fail each other. Hmm. So yeah, in this essay you write, today's tech approaches to COVID-19 exacerbate the systemic racism and health disparities that have given the pandemic its grotesque shape in our country. What is the solution? Like, is it, is it actually, is it just mitigation? Like, it doesn't seem reasonable to me to expect that tech can actually solve systemic racism and health disparities. Thank you for saying that, Greta, because it will never solve that. Okay, good. Um, I mean, not good, but I'm not crazy. No, and and actually, I think importantly, it's leading with the assumption that it will not solve those deeper issues Mm -hmm. and that it absolutely has to be assuming that it will make it worse if it is not seeing the systemic racism as part of what it needs to account for. Um, Mitigate is a strong word, but I think what what I do see us doing in the work we're doing through the projects I've been involved in since March, the Pandemic Response Network out of Duke Health, is saying, okay, we know that communities, particular communities, are harder hit. They should be our priority. How do we address their needs? What does that look like? And to be frank, most of what what I'm hoping I'm bringing to this project is to say, we looked at on-demand labor and and platforms that are effectively distributing task-based work. And we did see examples of telehealth in that mix that we studied for ghost work. Well, how would we take a team approach, an on-demand team approach that assembles a group of people who are not just available, but there's an abundance kind of, you know, what we used to think of as kind of a redundant workforce, that you really have this abundance of people available to serve the need of somebody who is learning they might have COVID, has to figure out how to self-quarantine. Maybe doesn't speak English. Probably doesn't speak English. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's really contending with those material realities. Instead of an abstraction of COVID could hit anyone, it is literally thinking, who do we now know is disproportionately affected? And what are their material, what does their life look like? It looks like I'm living with many members of my family. I don't have a salaried position. Right. A lot of those people are maybe still going into high-risk work environments. Exactly. In many yeah. a lot of cases, they're caring for people who are sick. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's saying those, those variables make all of the difference in what you might design. So... What are some of the other big questions that you're that you find yourself thinking about these days? Oh, we. I mean, right now I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. <laughs> I really am. I mean, Fair it's enough. 
you know, the questions, again, I feel like I do ask the same question. If, you know, if we're, if we're going to have so much um, wealth and capacity wrapped up in technology, how can it be accountable to society? How can it be recognized as something other than a private consumable good? And so, you know, really the next set of questions on the horizon for me are um, circling back to thinking about, you know, what are the ways we can quite literally build in structures of accountability when we build technology? What are the review processes? What are the regulations? And what are the engineering um, kind of engineering and computer science um, touchstones that can become the norm so that we're, that we really are building with a sense that um, differences matter. Yeah. How much do you think it has to do with the importance of diversifying who's in charge in tech also? That's necessary. It's not sufficient. You know, there's, there's just no way that you can change who's at the table and expect something um, different to, to come out the door. It's really got to be a matter of saying it absolutely matters who's involved in designing, investing in deploying technologies. But, you know, to be honest, by the time it becomes a private enterprise, it, it's really too easy for all of us to lose sight of the the huge social impact of these technologies. They're not, you know, things, these objects like shrink wrapped in a box on a CD-ROM anymore. I mean, they are, (laughs) you know, we, we live and breathe with them. Um, We're like actually addicted to them. (laughs) Well, no, actually I would say, no, we're not addicted to them, but we, we have integrated them into how we connect with each other. So you could say we're addicted to each other. That's Mm -hmm. true. We're absolutely addicted to connecting with each other. That was some of my earliest work was realizing, oh, these young people, what do they do when they go online? Well, they try to find people like them yeah. in the near, you know, the, the county over. So we are absolutely um, addicted to staying connected with each other and that we've moved technologies to play center, you know, kind of central roles in that connection is a statement about in the United States, how we also don't fund public parks, don't fund public schools, don't, you know, we don't fund the kinds of um, serendipitous crossroads we Hmm. used to um, walk down to, to meet new people or to casually hang out with the people we love. So, you know, it's it's recognizing that technologies have become these, what I call de facto public squares. Hmm. They are there are backyard barbecues, <laughs> and knowing that means tending to them with the kind of social glue they provide, rather than treating them as kind of these individual devices that some people have and some people don't. Even if you don't have these technologies, uh, they affect what you can access. After the break, we're going to hear about how Mary and one other newly anointed MacArthur fellow found out they even won the prize and what they're going to do with the money they're going to get.
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hasia whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. When I talked to Mary, I couldn't not ask about how she found out that she was a MacArthur genius because I love a story about complete stunned surprise. And I got to say, Mary did not disappoint. So they had sent me an email and said, we'd like to set up some time to talk with you confidentially about an anthropologist that we're considering for a MacArthur. Oh, that's adorable. I know. And I literally, I'm like, okay, you know, I, I can fit this in. That's, that's. And you weren't like, it me. <laughs> I genuinely was, I had that like, wah, wah. <laughs> this is so cool. And my colleagues is getting this. And this is kind of like that, you know, yeah, I'm sure there's a German <laughs> term for that. So I, you know, I got on the call and I was thinking like, there's some really great people doing this work. I wonder who they're considering. And I, and I don't even remember what the person said after the first two minutes. She's like, this is a ruse. You're actually the recipient. And then after that, I literally was like swearing for about 10 minutes and laughing uncontrollably. That's what my partner told me. I literally was just up here going, shit, no, hell no, you know, and just laughing. I still actually can't believe it, to be honest. I'm, it's, it's very weird. <laughs> I also had the pleasure of talking to another MacArthur winner earlier this week, Dr. Damien Fair. He's the director of the University of Minnesota's Masonic Institute for the Developing Brain. And he's asking big questions about how early brain development can lead to neurodivergent conditions like autism or ADHD or even schizophrenia. What we're trying to do is really trying to bridge the type of basic science work that I do with the educators, with the policymakers, with the community, one, so that it has a bigger impact on folks' everyday lives, and then two, so that we're communicating with folks on the ground, so to speak, so that we're, the types of questions that we're asking and answering are relevant to the people. Unlike Mary, Damien did not get an email. He just got like a gazillion phone calls. Yeah, well, it was about a month ago. Okay. And I was on this very long workshop. Uh-huh. I had given a talk and there was a bunch of others about um, challenges in our science. And it was- a, Was it like on Zoom or whatever? Yeah, it was on Zoom. It was, it was a marathon meeting, probably about eight hours. Oh God. <laughs> and I kept getting this call from Chicago and I kept hanging up. You know, because I, I just I didn't recognize the number. I thought I was spam. Did it start to annoy you? Were you like, who is this number? I, it was. It was very annoying. And then <laughs> at at the end of the meeting, they, they called one more time. And I just, you know, I don't wouldn't normally do this. I mean, I, if I don't recognize them, I typically don't answer. Mm. I answered and they they said, you know, congratulations. You <laughs> won the Arthur Fellowship. You know what that is? And I was like, what? <laughs> 
I was just shocked. It took me a second to recalibrate <laughs> in my brain. Oh, I shouldn't be annoyed with these people at all. Exactly. <laughs> and it was embarrassing at the same time. I was like, oh my God, I've been hanging up on you guys all day. Along with being called a genius and being surprised, apparently, a major perk of the MacArthur Fellowship is that it comes with a no-strings-attached prize of $625,000. That is paid out over five years. And I know, I know, it is extremely rude to talk to people about money, especially when they are guests on your podcast, but I just had to ask. So there's there's a cash prize with with the macarthur fellowship um are you gonna like buy a pony or anything really ridiculous? <laughs> well my daughter has already asked me if i could buy a pony oh yeah. good <laughs> so uh, well yeah no i so i we probably won't be buying any ponies but we um <laughs> my wife and i've been talking about it a little bit my wife is a very successful physician scientist in her own right and she's now is has become the director of women's global health at the University of Minnesota. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! And she's de- been developing some programs that she calls global local, which is trying to, in essence, build capacity in under resourced environments, including um, overseas, to essentially spread the kind of work that we do out to folks that are often marginalized. And That's so awesome. we've been trying to brainstorm through a few ways that we may be able to leverage some of this money towards that effort. We haven't nailed down exactly what that might look like, but that's just one one idea in the hopper. That is much more virtuous than a pony. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's funny. I feel like I have a completely unsophisticated sense of like hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I just tend to think of it as like, well, yeah, you could buy like 10,000 corgis with that. That's right. <laughs> Amazingly, getting a pony was also not part of Mary's plan for the prize money. I mean, I confess that my favorite MacArthur Award winners in the past have been the writers. So Jasmine Ward. I mean, you know, just thinking all of these people who... Well, and even in your class, we have Nora N.K. Jemison and Jacqueline Woodson, who are like two amazing writers. Oh my gosh. I mean, it, you know, and for writers, you know, I, again, like being surrounded by people who are not in academe, but write for a living mm-hmm. and freelance, yeah. it's like that, that is that that's liberation. I mean, that is yeah. the freedom to do your work and pursue your mm-hmm. interests. So I feel incredibly um, lucky and, and privileged in all senses of the word that I have this. Mm-hmm. And so mostly I'm trying to think like, how do I get this out in the world in a way that will support other people's work. Hmm. So you're not going to buy a pony? I'm not going to buy a pony, although we did get more daycare for our dog so that he's oh, not in the background when I'm on calls. Because it's a little kooky making to have a dog barking while you're trying to give a public talk, quote unquote, on Zoom. I mean, that is an animal-related expenditure. I did do a little math. If you got a super fancy corgi and you won $600,000, I mean, you could get like 300,000 corgis, which like now that I'm thinking of all of those corgis in my two bedroom apartment, it's a bad idea. It's a really bad idea. Okay, that's it for today. Tune in Friday for book club. We're going to chat with Anne Helen Peterson. She's the author of Can't Even 
how millennials became the burnout generation. The show was produced by me and Justin Bull. Our intern is Isabel Carter and our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. See y'all on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.